That's, uh, <laughs> I made a joke about that at the nine, and they intentionally did that to me at the 11. I just like the atmospherical music when the lights come on. I, if I can get some strings on me or something, maybe I can like come up out of the stage or something. I don't know. We can work that out, right? Get a big gold globe that spin. Oh, wait, that's someone else. Sorry. Um, anyway, so uh, that was wrong. That was wrong. Sorry. My bad. Okay. Anyways, so uh, that was real wrong. Anyways, we're starting a new book of the Bible today. We're going to stick to the Bible today. No more, no more Coryisms uh, for the rest of the morning. And um, we just got done with an Old Testament book of the Bible, Nehemiah. And we're moving into the New Testament to one of the letters of Paul. We're actually going to do two of them. We'll do 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians over the next couple of months. You know, we've been going through whole books of the Bible ever since we started the church 12 and a half years ago. It's all we've ever done. And if you're new here, I'll tell you something that is just absolutely shocking and, and wonderful about the Word. It doesn't matter what book of the Bible doing, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, it is always relevant. It always hits exactly the topics that we need it to hit when, when it needs to hit those things. It is fascinating. It is really a, a living uh, word, and, and it's just amazing. So Nehemiah, I hope you enjoyed that, a book written 2,500 years ago, and it's amazing how relevant it is to our culture today. We move into 1 Thessalonians, which was still written about 1,950 years ago, so, so still quite a ways back, but you'll be shocked in this book of the Bible just how relevant it is for us today. So here's what I'm gonna do today, or here's what we, we hope to accomplish. So we're gonna do a brief intro. I'll talk briefly about just kind of the context, the location, the author of the book of 1 Thessalonians, which is in the New Testament right after the book of Colossians. And then we'll do chapter one. Chapter one is super short. It's only 10 verses, but Paul really crams quite a bit into those 10 verses, right? Very succinct, 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 ugh. Very impactful, right? Let's just go a different route with that word, all right? And um, very concise, that's another good one, right? So, and he does that in 10 quick verses in chapter one. Here is the thesis we're gonna hang out on today. And guys, I'm just gonna warn you. Um, Paul gets real serious today. And so, so we have to get serious, right? One of the reasons why we teach the Bible the way we do is we cannot skip the hard conversations. And today is just gonna be one of those hard conversations. We're going to talk about serious stuff at the end of this, okay? And um, what we're going to talk about that's so serious is do we understand as humans, all of us in this room, and, and do we understand that, that we need to share this message with other people because it's so important? Because there are ramifications, eternal and, and temporal in this life, ramifications if we do not follow Jesus Christ. Do we really think about that? Do we really understand that there are consequences for our actions, right? Or lack of actions in this life. That's what we're gonna talk about today. Now that's heavy stuff, um, but it's very, very important stuff. So you should've got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything will be in there. Everything will be on the screens in the room. If you have the Experience Community app, uh, very, very convenient way to follow along. Just click on sermon notes. Everything is there, scripture and notes. If you have a Bible, we're towards the back of your Bible. Um, in the New Testament, right after the book of Colossians, you have First and Second Thessalonians. So let me pray. I'll give you a little overview of this book. We'll jump into chapter one. I, I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll be challenged by it. I think you'll be inspired by it. And, um, and uh, we'll just kind of see where God takes us. Okay, all right, let me pray. Father, Lord, we love you. God, forgive me for my really bad joke at the beginning of this lesson already. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that we can come into this place, God, and worship 
together with you. Lord, I pray that our study of your word today, God, that it encourages us, sharpens us, challenges us, God, educates us. I pray that our study of the word blesses your kingdom, God, and honors you. Lord, so we pray for our church. Uh, We don't just pray for our church, we pray for every church in our city. Pray for all of our other campuses and the churches in those cities, God. And um, Lord, we just love you, God. If we have ever needed you and if we've ever needed the church, Father, I pray that, that we really need you right now, God, and we really need each other right now. So Lord, strengthen us during this time and encourage us, God. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a little bit about this book of the Bible. First, let me tell you a little bit about the guy that wrote this book of the Bible. Um, Paul, who used to be called Saul, was a Jew, and he was born near the border of Lebanon, which is modern-day Turkey. Not Lebanon, that's down the street. Lebanon is on the other side of the world, north of Israel. That's where Paul was born. It's important to know where he is born because he was a Jew by blood, right? But he was a Roman citizen because of the area he was born in. And if you ever read the New Testament, the fact that Paul had Roman citizenship got him out of some pretty precarious situations because the Roman citizens were offered different freedoms than, let's say, just the Jewish citizens. And so because he had kind of this dual citizenship, both in the Jewish world and in the Roman world, it helped him out quite a bit in his mission. Um, Paul was an extremely intelligent man, extremely well-educated, and he was a Pharisee. Now, if you don't know what that is, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Basically, the main antagonists, the bad guys of the Gospels, are the Pharisees, the religious order. And Paul was a part of the Pharisees. Now, he was a part of the Pharisees until he had a dramatic conversion to Christianity about two years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul's job post uh, uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was he went from town to town pulling Christians out in the street. He would either arrest them, beat them, or even kill them. In fact, The first Christian to ever die for Jesus's name was a guy named Stephen. Acts chapter seven, it says they drugged Stephen out in the street. They were stoning him to death. And it says, as they were killing Stephen, they handed their coats to a young man named Saul. That was Paul, right? That's pretty dramatic. Later on, of course, he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, became a believer, and then completely changed the trajectory of his life. Most of Paul's ministry was was teaching non-Jewish people. So mostly Greeks, Romans, all kinds of other people from around the world, mostly non-Jewish is who Paul ministered to. He was eventually arrested for his faith, ironically by maybe history's most insane leader, Caesar Nero. He's probably in the top five for sure. This guy was absolutely crazy, burned down a part of Rome, slit his own throat in front of the Senate, right, when he committed suicide. He had Peter killed, hung upside, or uh, crucified upside down, and then he had Paul beheaded in about 68 AD. It's fascinating to know that part of history because this is the same guy that Paul wrote about in Romans 13 when he said, respect the governing authorities. Isn't that fascinating? But this is the world that Paul lived in. This is how he eventually passed away because of his faith. So he writes these two letters that we're gonna go over in the next couple of months to a church in an area called Thessalonica. This is in, I'll show you a map here in a second because we're fancy like that around here. It was in Northeastern Greece and it was a strong urban city, right? Very hustle and bustle. It was growing rapidly. It was a Roman city, but it was in Northeast Greece. 
about 200,000 people. I put that out there because Murfreesboro is getting close to about 200,000. Really, we're about 175 in this area right now. So kind of the feel of our city, Murfreesboro would have been in a lot of ways similar to the feel of Thessalonica. Not just rapidly growing, not only becoming increasingly uh, affluential, which means more money coming into it, but very, very diverse. You'd have people from all over the world. Again, like we do, we have a huge Kurdish population in, in South Nashville, and we have a huge Laotian population and, and Arabic population in this area. And this kind of hodgepodge of culture and, and a lot of professional, intelligent, educated people. It was just a very interesting city to be in. And all these merchants coming from all over the world. Again, here's the map, so you can kind of see why it was a merchant town. So you have Italy, of course, everyone knows the boot. You have Greece, in between Greece and what is modern day Turkey, in the Bible they call it Asia Minor, is the Aegean Sea, right? And then right on kind of the northeastern coast uh, of, of Greece, you have Thessalonica. All these other cities were other cities that Paul wrote letters to, right? So you have the church in Philippi, that's where we get the book of Philippians. You have the church in Rome, Romans, uh, Colossia, you have the, the book of Colossians, you have Ephesians, because of the church in Ephesus, and then we're eventually gonna do Corinthians, which was written to the church in Corinth. So I don't know if you guys are nerds like this. I just like to know where in the world we're talking about when I read this kind of stuff in the Bible. So there you have an, an idea of where we are. So why did he write these letters to the church in uh, Thessalonica? So while Paul was in Corinth, he, Silas, and Timothy jointly wrote this letter. So a lot of people don't know that. He had some help with this letter. They wrote it in about 51 AD. And those three guys had been to Thessalonica once, got beat up really bad and ran out of town. And I don't know if they did this because Timothy was the young rookie, but uh, they sent Timothy back and said, hey, deliver this letter and go check on our friends in Thessalonica. You know, you're the youngest, see ya. And uh, they sent Timothy back to check on the church in Thessalonica and to encourage them. Now, this was a very young church. I'm not talking about young in age, young in their spirituality and their faith. So they're very inexperienced. Not only that, because they were mostly non-Jewish, they didn't have the, the heritage of knowing about the true God, right? So this was a young, inexperienced, new group of believers. So because of that, Paul, this is important for us, Paul wanted to encourage this young church to stay faithful even though they lived in the middle of a pagan society. Pagan means a lot of people that don't believe in the true God. Now, let me tell you, we often talk about the South, right? You know, like this area, like everyone's a Christian. In 2017, the government did a study all over the country, but one of them was Rutherford County. And in Rutherford County in 2017, only 32% of the population in this county four years ago, almost five years ago, went to any house of worship. That included Buddhist temples, Muslim mosques, Unitarian churches, whatever the case may be. So it's probably more in the neighborhood of about 30% of people in our county went to church on a regular basis four years ago. Now, in case you haven't noticed, the last couple of years, right, things have been pretty chaotic and church attendance across the board in the United States has probably gone down about 35% because of the fiasco that was the pandemic of COVID, right? So where it used to be about 30% of our county went to church, realistically now it's probably about 25%. The reason I say these facts to you is I think we have this misconception that we live in this just oversaturated Christian area and we absolutely do not. We live in a very pagan society, right? Even here in Middle Tennessee. And we have to make sure that we hold on to our faith 
amongst that, right? In the middle of that. He also wanted to correct any theological misunderstandings. Paul is writing to them to make sure that their theology, their thoughts on God are correct and to encourage them to keep growing in their relationship with Jesus so they can be sanctified. That's a fancy word for saying being set apart for God to use them. Now, here's the last thing. The last thing that first and second Thessalonians are really gonna get into, especially towards the latter part, is Paul is gonna talk about two very sobering things. The one is Christians will one day face severe persecution. It's the first thing he brings up. We don't like to talk about that stuff, but it's biblical, so we need to. The second thing Paul is going to bring up, and he's gonna do it right at the end of, of chapter one, he's gonna just throw it in there right at the end, is that one day Jesus is gonna come back and if we have not had a relationship with him, we face the wrath of God. That's a very sobering thing, okay? So we're gonna talk about that a little bit today. What I'm gonna do, I'm gonna read a little bit. We're gonna break this short chapter into three parts and um, we'll see where God takes us at the end of it, okay? Let me read a little bit and we'll go back and we'll, we'll dissect it. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how he starts off this letter. So the first thing Paul wants us to know when we read the book of Thessalonians is this is a very spiritual letter written to a Christian church. The reason that's important is Paul wants us to know this isn't just like a casual conversation, like, hey, did you see anything good on Netflix this week? It wasn't like that. It was, it was deep. We're gonna talk about deep things. We're gonna talk about eternity. We're gonna talk about theology. We're gonna talk about the state of our souls and the state of our world. It's serious. So here's the thing. When God looks at the church, I'm talking about the church, all people that follow him on planet earth, the way God views the church and the way Paul viewed the church is the church will vary in its methods all over planet earth. What I mean by that is this. We all believe the same thing. That's what unites us, that we believe we're only saved by Jesus Christ. That's our major component that unites the church. How we celebrate our salvation in Jesus differs all around the earth, right? Church in Africa doesn't look like church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, nor does church in Asia or Southeast Asia or uh, you know, the middle of Russia or whatever the case may be. And that's fine as long as we have the same belief system. We can express it differently based on our culture. The second thing Paul says is he says, grace to you and peace. These are words we use a lot in church and oftentimes we don't really understand what they mean. Grace is very simple. It is the unmerited favor of God. It's that God loves you, he favors you, he wants the best for you, but you have done nothing to earn that. That is grace. The second thing Paul says is, I pray peace over you. Peace only comes when we have a relationship with God. When we understand that God gives us this unmerited favor, we build a relationship with him, we have peace because of that relationship. This is something that we should be praying for every single person we meet. Grace and peace to you. One, if you're a non-believer, I pray that you recognize the grace of God and I pray that you eventually have peace because you have built a relationship with God. I want that for every single non-believer I meet, right? Grace and peace. 
We also pray that for every believer. Because if you're a believer in this room, you and I should know the means by which we live a peaceful life, by being connected to the Prince of Peace. And I think so many people in the last couple of years have been living not at peace because maybe it's been too much time watching the news and too little time talking to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Because when we're more connected to Jesus, we are at peace. It's a natural byproduct of having a relationship with the Prince of Peace, okay? Another thing he says is this. He is thankful for his friends in Thessalonica. Paul says that he, Silas, another name for him is Silvanus. I think we should all come up with secondary names too, just for the heck of it, right? Thinking of mine. And Tim, I couldn't fit the O-T-H-Y in there. It's just pure laziness. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy always thank God for the Thessalonians, and it says that they pray for them constantly. Now listen, I'm not gonna indict you on this. I'll, I'll indict myself on this one. What percentage of our prayers are focused on ourselves versus focused on other people? If we're honest, right? I'd say a, a pretty big percentage probably. And Paul says every single day, I thank God for you and I pray for you constantly. In our prayers, if you're in here and you're a Christian, when we pray, we should always come last. God should come first, our thankfulness, we should repent to God, we should pray for other people, and then we should come dead last. Now, here's the interesting thing about our relationship with God. God says that those who place themselves last will come first. So when we humble ourselves and put everything else in front of us, God actually honors that, right? And he rewards that in us. So let me ask you guys out there, how often when we pray is it just about us? When is the last time did we just hit our knees and go, God, thank you so much for my family. Thank you so much for my friends. Thank you so much for the church that I get to be a part of. God, bless the people around me. Take care of them, Lord. Provide for them. Keep them safe. When's the last time we just lifted up other people and were thankful for other people? And then Paul says something really interesting. I think it's in verse three here. And you could teach a whole sermon on this. Let me break this down real, real quickly. Paul commended the church in Thessalonica for a couple of different things. Look at how good this is. He said, one, I commend you because your faith produces works. What's interesting about that, biblically speaking, there are two kinds of faith. There is faith that, that I know something is there. For instance, there are a lot of people who know that Jesus Christ is the Savior. The book of James says, even the devils in hell know that Jesus is the Savior. That's one kind of faith. They have faith in Jesus. They have faith that he is everything he says he is because they know he is, right? They used to be roommates with him once upon a time before they got kicked out. And so they know that, but they're still in hell because they do not act on that faith. That's a saving faith. And so what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica is, your faith produces works because James says, without works, there is, your faith is dead. There is no evidence of that. So his first commandment to them is, you have true faith, which means you do something with your faith. You live out your faith. The second thing Paul says is, the work that you do from your faith is motivated from love, not self-interest. That when you do good things, if you feed the poor or clothe the naked or visit the prisoners or mow your neighbor's lawn or whatever the heck you do. It's motivated not so you can take a picture and put it on Instagram and get affirmation. It's motivated because you love your neighbor and because you love the Lord. And he commended them for that. Your work is done because of the right motives. And then the third thing is, he says, you, you have endurance. You push through this life regardless of how difficult it is 
because you have hope that Jesus Christ is going to take care of you, that everything Jesus says is true. And so true faith, true hope, true love are a product. They only come from God. It's because God is in us, okay? Next part. You guys are so tired and or, uh, so quiet in here today. I'm tired, you're quiet. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit. And you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when, look at this, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. So here's the thing. If faith, hope, and love only come from God, let me put it another way. The Bible says every good and perfect thing comes from God. What that means is, and, and this gets taken way out of context when I say this kind of stuff, but apart from God, we can produce nothing good. Even if people are not believers in God, every good thing they produce is because of a thing called common grace, which means God shows grace even to those who don't give God the credit for it, right? That every good thing we do, every achievement we have, every good thing we produce is because God has been good enough and gracious enough to let us accomplish those things. If we are in this room and we understand that every good and perfect thing, all faith, hope, and love come from God, if we understand that as Christians, there is absolutely no room for arrogance in the life of a believer. Zero. Zero. About how we look, I'm a really pretty person, right? Well, God made you. Well, I'm a really intelligent person. God made your mind too. Well, look how much money I have in the bank. It's because God gave you the ability to work like that and earn it. Look at every success we have, and it all has to be attributed back to God. Paul makes this clear when he looks at the church in Thessalonians and he says, man, you guys are killing it. And the reason you're killing it is because God chose you. God picked you. It's because of God, right? But he's working through you. Now, here's the other side of that coin. Though God chooses us, we have a responsibility to choose God back. And when we choose God back, that's when salvation takes place. Now, here's what is interesting about that. Salvation is not just an intellectual thing. It's not just that I pick up this book one day and read, wow, I am saved by grace through faith. I have faith. Okay, there it is, right? That's a part of it. That's, the, that's the, the truth side of it, the intellectual side. There is a part of that, but that's not the whole of it. We're not just saved by the word. We are saved by a supernatural thing that happens in us. That when we give our lives to God wholeheartedly, it is this supernatural thing that changes our hearts renews our mind, right? It delivers us of our past selves. Romans chapter six, I've quoted it every weekend since the baptism service, right? For like four weeks now. Anyways, Romans chapter six, so we are a new person and this happens supernaturally. Thank you over there. I appreciate that. Thank you. Because this is the thing. That's why we worship him in spirit and truth because something dramatic has happened in our intellect, but it also has happened in our heart. 
that God has set us free, delivered us. And this is by the power of the Holy Spirit, not just in word, but in power. And listen, because God has been so gracious to us, because while we were still sinners, Jesus opened up the opportunity for us to have a relationship with him. We are to model this miraculous salvation to the world around us. And how good is God that he gives us this book? And this book gives us clarity on who God is. It gives us clarity on how we are to live. The power of the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to live out the teachings of this book, to live righteously. And again, because God has been so good to us, we should want this to happen to those around us. How selfish would it be if God delivered me of drug addiction like he did in 2002, late 2002? I was suicidal. I was on my third suicide attempt. That's when I got saved, if you've never been to next class. How selfish would it be that God had brought me from so much and I don't wanna share that with people around me? Listen, God can change you too. God can give you contentment and deliver you from hopelessness and depression and anxiety and fear and all this awful stuff that we're surrounded by. God can do it for you too. We should want to do that. Thank you back there. So what happened was, Paul was saying to the Thessalonians, you are doing this, but every body of believers, if we've been saved by grace through faith, we are to tell other people about that grace, right? And so he says to the Thessalonians, he says, you have imitated me and I have imitated Jesus. So the only way, this is so good, guys, the only way that Paul could be a leader is he followed Jesus. The only way that you can be a good parent is if you follow Jesus. The only way that you can be a good spouse is if you follow Jesus. The only way you can be a great boss is if you follow the biblical example of how to work and lead, right? And so that's what Paul's saying, follow me, right, as I follow Jesus. Now, how did he teach the other believers how to do that? One, he taught them the word. I find this fascinating. Paul was teaching them the Old Testament while they were receiving the New Testament in real time, right? So he was writing to them the New Testament. They were receiving it in real time. Not only did he deliver the word to them, he lived out those things. Listen, this is, a, this is a huge weight, but we can do it if we have the Holy Spirit in us. Let me tell you, all you believers in this room, if you're a Christian in this room, you are the only image that people have of Jesus in this world until Jesus comes back. Think, of, think about that for a second. Boy, it's weird. I don't, I don't even know if I wanna clap for that. That makes me nervous, right? Because when you're driving down I-24 on your way to your mom's house, like I was a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, Lord, I don't know if you're in the car right now, right? It gets bad. But because we're dependent on Jesus Christ, we can be the ambassadors, right? So listen, how we live matters. How we live matters. How we treat our waitress matters. How we raise our kids matters, right? How we, how we talk to our neighbor matters. It all matters. And though it is difficult, we can do it if Jesus is with us. We can even do it in hard times. Look at this. Paul said that in spite of severe persecution, they welcomed the message with joy with the Holy Spirit. We learn a couple of things from here. One is even in severe hard times, that should not rock the faith of a true believer. Can we talk about the United States in the last two years, the church? Let's just, just do it for a minute, right? In the last two years, if you talk to anyone that pastors a church, the very healthiest churches, the healthiest churches that you will talk to are at about 65 to 70% of what they were two years ago. This church, which is a pretty darn healthy church, last uh, two years ago, we were running about 6,000. 
mostly at this campus. Right now, we're running about four because of all the fiasco of, of COVID. Now, I'm gonna tell you, this church, along with almost any church you'll talk to, lost about 30% of their congregation, not because of masks or no masks, not because of vaccinations or no, mask, uh, no vaccinations. The bottom line is, is we got so hung up on fighting over things that weren't essential. We got so hung up and so divided over stupid, petty things that quite frankly, a lot of people stepped out of the church, right? There was no winning for pastors. A lot of people left because I made you wear a mask. A lot of people left because I didn't make you wear a mask long enough. I hated people, you know, that kind of stuff, right? I was taking away your freedoms or I wanted you to die. It was one extreme or the other. I was either too political or I wasn't political enough. And that was across the board in churches all around the United States. And do you know what I perceived over the last two years? I feel like God has lifted the hood of the American church and said, your engine is not running properly. Because, listen, because listen, listen. Hold on, I'm, don't clap for me. I'm being a jerk for you for a second. So if, listen, if politics in a pandemic divide the church of God in the United States, we are not ready for severe persecution yet. We're not ready for it. I'm sure some of that offended you right now. But listen, if you're that easily offended, you have a spirit of offense and you need to pray about that. Because if you can't hear truth, that's not on me. That's not on me. We are not ready for severe persecution right now in the United States. We get divided over a piece of cloth on our face. We fight over that. We lose friends over that. We see churches lose 30% of their congregations over things like that. Man, God forbid, right? The government kick down your door, throw you in a coliseum with tigers and lions and gladiators. We, we, we have no idea what severe persecution is, right? Losing a friend on Facebook is not severe persecution. It's not, I'm sorry. We have not faced it yet. Severe persecution is when Constantine calls the religious leaders of the world so they can get together and write a council, right? They can, they can create a council to write doctrine for the church. And when the greatest leaders of the Christian movement walk into Rome and they meet Constantine, and Constantine wrote in one of his personal diaries, right, one of his journals, that he kissed the face of a Christian leader who half of his face was missing because a tiger had ripped it off in the Colosseum. But we won't come to church because you know, a multiplicity of reasons, right? All selfish. We're not ready for it yet, but we have to get ready for it because it's coming. Here's the other thing. The gospel produces joy even when we suffer. In fact, it is in suffering that we identify with Jesus the most. And we should find joy in that suffering because we identify with Jesus the most. The only way number one and number two are possible, though, is if we have number three, we must absolutely be full of the Holy Spirit of God. We must be absolutely full of the Holy Spirit of God. Too much time on that slide. I'm sorry, guys. So as a result of the Thessalonians' faithfulness, as a result of following the word of God, as a result of telling people about their faith, the Thessalonian church became a beacon of light to the entire nation of Greece. So here's the thing, guys, all of us in this room, we are called to be individual lights. That means wherever you go, right? Um, wherever you work, wherever you get coffee, wherever you grocery shop, whatever the case may be, we are to be a beacon of light of Jesus Christ in our community, right, as individuals. We are also called to be a beacon of light as a church because we are symbiotic, and even though some of you in this room may not like me very much right now, we are connected, right? We are connected. And when one of us falls or does something foolish, we all feel it. When we find out on the news that a church has embezzled money and a pastor's been, you know, spending it on crack cocaine and hookers, like that affects all of us. It hurts all of us. 
When we find out whole denominations are turning their back on principles and doctrines of the Bible, that hurts all of us because we're connected. And we're not just to be the light as individuals, we are to be the light of the world. The church is to be the salt and light of the world. According to Matthew chapter five, straight from Jesus himself, we have to be that example, okay? But if we're going to do that, we have to change directions. Last part. Therefore, we don't need to say anything for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Look at this. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So being saved, right? Being saved is only possible when we willingly lay down our idols, whatever we place in front of God, whenever we willingly lay that down and pick up the ways of God and the pursuit of God. That's when salvation is possible. Now, let's talk honestly today, us in this room. Let's just be honest. I'll be honest with you. You be honest with me. The reason why so many of us in this room have a hard time completely surrendering to Jesus, we may surrender partly to Jesus, but I'm talking about a complete surrender to Jesus, is because in the bottom of our hearts, it really boils down to a trust issue. I don't trust that God has better plans for me than I have for myself. That's really what it boils down to if you and I are being honest. A lot of people don't tithe to the church because they're like, I can do better with my money than God can do with my money. They don't serve because I wanna do with my time what I wanna do and it's not better to serve and to do these things. It's a trust issue. That's what it boils down to. Here's the thing though. If we simply look at history, I'm not talking about biblical history, I'm talking about history. The selfish patterns of mankind have never worked. No civilization has stood the test of time. No human has become immortal, right? We have not fixed the world's problem. There's still hunger. There's still homelessness. There's still death and violence and everything, right? Because our patterns do not work. In my opinion, my humble opinion, one of the most prolific statements in the entire Bible is found in Matthew chapter seven when Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit. You will know what it is by what they produce. So what we have to do is we have to address this trust issue. And we have to understand that God has a better plan for us now, right now in this life. That if we will give God this life, he has a better marriage for us, he has better, we can raise our children better and they can be better people, that we can be better employees, that we can be more content if we will just relent and give God our lives now. The other thing that Jesus says in John is, I have a better eternity for you if you'll just trust me. In my father's house are many rooms. If that weren't true, I wouldn't have told you, right? But this is true. And if you'll just submit to me, not only a better life now, a better eternity if we turn from our idols. And so there are no man-made objects. There are no man-made institutions that have been able to permanently save and change humanity. We are saved by God's grace. Look at this. Because we are saved by God's grace when we humble ourselves and follow him, because we're saved by his grace, we are forgiven of our sin. And because our sins are forgiven, we don't have shame. We don't have guilt. He can deliver us of insecurities. And when he does that, we now have the ability to live properly in the present. Because God forgives the past, we can live properly in the present, and we can set ourselves up for an eternity with him in paradise. Look at that. 
So again, history tells us that our ways are always destined to fail. But we're so arrogant in the United States that we're like, well, man, it may have failed every other time in human history, but we're Americans. It's gonna work for us this time. It's gonna work for us. Listen, I'm not even talking about economics right now. We could go there, but I'm not going to. So if you wanna know the direction of the United States right now, all you have to do is study Rome in the fourth and fifth century. That's all you gotta do. Well, Corey, what does that mean? Everything that we're doing now has been done 1,500 years ago. We think we're like new and original, right? Even when it comes to to issues of, of what is gender, we think that the questioning of gender is a new idea. It absolutely is not. In fact, you can go into the antiquity of the Roman Empire in the first and second centuries, and there was all kinds of statues that if you look at the statue from the rear, it looks like a voluptuous, beautiful woman, naked, of course. You turn it around to the front, and it is very much a male. The question of gender is not a new thing, right? It's been going on for 1,500 years plus. It's not a new thing. Hypersexualization is not a new thing. Study the Roman emperors, all of them experimented in orgies of both genders and all kinds of craziness. Been going around for a long time. In fact, one of the things that led to the demise of the Roman Empire was hypersexualization. Another thing that contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire was hyperviolence, right? Yeah, they were pretty barbaric. Let's talk about some of the movies and things that you guys watch, right? Let's talk about it for a second. Right? Let's talk about the YouTube videos that people like to watch of road rage and people getting their heads stomped on the pavement and garbage like that. Let's talk about ourselves for a second, how sophisticated and different we are, right? A wise man once said, there's nothing new under the sun. And the Roman Empire, when it fell, was also a pluralistic society, which meant that you could believe whatever you want to believe as long as it doesn't offend me. There's nothing new under the sun, brothers and sisters. If you wanna see the way that America's going, just study fourth and fifth century Rome and you'll see exactly how we're going to fall. But we're so arrogant that we think, well, we'll get a different, we'll get a different result this time. Okay, we'll see. Why is all of this important? Why do we care today? Why are you listening to me rant and rave up here? God doesn't need no shoes on, screaming up there. What's the point, right? <laughs> Why is it important that we study the Bible and we acknowledge that we have idols in our life and we need to move away from following those idols and we need to pursue God. Why is that important? Why did Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh, come down to earth, die on a hunk of wood, bleed out for nine hours? Why did he do that? To save our sins and, and open up a relationship with God. Why? Two reasons, two reasons. One, listen, this is very important. God knows that he needed to save us from ourselves. We give the devil way too much credit. If humanity is left to its own devices, we will tear ourselves apart. We will tear ourselves apart. The first thing that God has to save us from is us. The second thing that God has to save us from is he has to save us from his coming wrath. What does that mean? That means that God is good, he is fair, he is just, and he will not tolerate unrepentant evil. He will not tolerate rapists and murderers and thieves and people who divide and hurt and steal. He will not tolerate this, right? Unless it's repented for. And so the two things he saves us from, right? Is from ourselves and from his coming judgment of evil. If you and I have a life that follows Jesus, we will never experience the wrath of God. 
you will not experience the wrath of God and we will not self-destruct because we're not pursuing self, we're pursuing him, okay? So let's go back and then I'm gonna end on that thought again. Let me ask you this, if you're in this room, do you and I have biblical faith? Well, Corey, I believe Jesus is the son of God, the savior. Do you live on that? Does that belief produce good works in your life? If not, James says, he was the brother of Jesus, by the way, that faith without works is dead. It is dead, okay? Do we have biblical faith? When we do good things, if we feed the poor or clothe the naked or whatever good things we do, right? Even if we read the Bible and take time to pray every day, are we motivated by a love of God and a love of other people? Or is it so we can get that Instagram pic? And again, everyone can tell us how good we are, right? How holy we are. We're a culture addicted to affirmation. I don't know if you guys know that or not. That's why social media is so big. It's instant affirmation. It's instant feels, right? We get that instantly. We're addicted to it. What is our motivation for doing good things? Right? Here's the other thing. Do we have endurance? Do we have endurance? Do we push through this life even when it gets tough? Because we know that God will provide. We know that Jesus is gonna come back and he has a home prepared for us if we have ran this race well. And do we trust that God is in control? Do we trust that? Again, Christians are always so quick to say, we do, we trust. God is in control. Oh my gosh, a Democrat is in the White House. We're out of control. We're all going to hell. Now listen, I'm apolitical. But man, a lot of Christians who say God is in control, if, they're, if their Republican doesn't get nominated, or, or, you know, like, it can be any kind of little thing, and we instantly flip out, right? And we go nuts, and we burn bridges, and we hate everybody, and everyone's wrong except for me. And what that boils down to is, it doesn't matter who's in the White House, it doesn't matter what's happening right now in the Soviet Union or in China or whatever the case, Jesus still sits firmly on his throne in heaven. Do you trust such a thing? And again, I hope you don't take that out of context. I'm apolitical, apolitical, which means I don't like politics, right? I believe in one government that's going to last forever, right? It's not the American government. It's not the one I believe in. So we are saved by God's grace and we produce good things because of God's power. Listen, are we humble in that? Christians, we have to stay humble. I dare say that all sin derives from pride. And we need to make sure that we are humble. We also need to make sure that we are utterly dependent on Jesus. This is not a deprecation thing. It's not self-deprecating. I'm not trying to deprecate you. That's what always gets taken out of context. I had someone say something about this recently about me on Facebook. Man, always saying that humans are terrible and blah, blah, blah. I guess you don't think God values. I, you're the most important thing that God has ever created. The only thing made in the image of God. But we have to understand that apart from him, we do terrible, terrible things. Doesn't mean that God doesn't love us, but it means that we're not gonna be saved and be with him for eternity. We have to be utterly dependent on Jesus. I can do nothing unless you give me the ability to do it, God. That's not chains, that's liberation. That's freedom. Do we model the gospel? In other words, do we live out the principles of Jesus? Do people see the gospel being lived out by us? Do we do that to those that we love, those that are around us? 
will we be faithful in the middle of severe persecution? If times get really, really hard, will we still be faithful in the middle of that persecution? Basically what Paul is saying is you have two choices. We either follow our idols or we follow the way of Jesus Christ. And everything that we have talked about today hinges on us turning away from our pursuits and going the way God wants us to go. So the question is, will we trust that God's plans and God's directions are better than ours? Do we understand that is our only hope? It is our only hope. Look at history. Again, tell me a civilization that has stood the test of time. Tell me a human that has beaten death. It has not happened. Do we understand this is our only hope? Again, has the fruit of society not proven this to us? I found this video the other day on, on YouTube completely by accident. And it's a video <clears throat> of a guy who lives in Philadelphia. And it's got, man, it's got like a couple of million views on it. And all it is is him driving around Philadelphia in the middle of the day with a camera out his window, videotaping all the homeless camps and people strung out on crack and meth and God knows what, all the pimps and the hookers and the people puking in the corners and the people laying there half naked, half on the street. And it's crazy to me because almost in every major city that you go into now, there are those blocks, right? Not even in major capital cities. You can see it in areas like Murfreesboro. You can see it in Nashville. You can see it in all kinds of places. And it is fascinating to me that society's answer right now to these kinds of problems is make it all legal and decriminalize all of it. Just let them have it. Right now in Oregon, you can get, you can get small amounts of meth and crack and coke legally. Even in Murfreesboro, I don't know if you know this, weed's completely decriminalized in this county. And so you can go out and do these things, right? And then we drive down the street and we're like, well, why are there so many dead crack addicts on this block? Why is prostitution so big? Why is violent crime increasing? Because our ways don't work. They don't work. They never work. And so we look back and we scratch our heads and we say, how did we get here? We got here because we have pursued our idols and not laid them down for the pursuit of Christ. That's why we have arrived at the place that we are at right now. And again, all of Matthew chapter seven is Jesus saying, have you not seen yet that your ways don't work? Have you not seen yet that your ways don't work? But we keep on going that road. We keep on going down that road. Because again, this time it's gonna be different. So here's what happens. At the end of chapter one, Paul says, avoid the coming wrath. I don't know if you've ever heard eternity explained to you like this, but this is essentially what happens at the end of all of our lives. At the end of all of our lives, God gives us over to an eternity of what we've always wanted in this life. What does that mean? No one wants hell. Hold on. Heaven is an eternity with Jesus. And if we have lived this entire life saying, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, at the end of our life, Jesus says, I'm gonna give you over to an eternity where you'll never have to see me again. That is hell, right? Because anything apart from him is terrible. But that's what we've always wanted. On the other side, if we have lived a life that has been dedicated to the teachings of Jesus, that we have fallen in love with God, at the end of our life, God says, welcome, good and faithful servant. 
This is what you've always wanted. You're gonna be with me for eternity, right? Come on. So at the end of our life, God either gives us over to what we've always wanted. In Romans chapter one, it says a reprobate mind, right? Evil. Or he rescues us from his coming wrath. He rescues us from our own self-destruction. Do we not comprehend? Listen, listen. I'm talking both to you Christians and if, if, if you're a non-believer in this place, do we understand the ramifications of the life we live? Do we understand the ramifications of a life of pursuing what we want versus a life of pursuing what God wants for us? Do you know what Jesus says in the book of Matthew? In the book of Matthew, Jesus says that every single one of us in this room will have a book written about us. Did you know that? It says in Matthew that at the end of our life, we will stand in front of the great judge and Jesus will break out a book that is the life of Corey Trimble. And he will go and he will hold me accountable, Jesus says, for every word and deed that is in this book that is written about me, the record that he has kept. Now, if I have repented for my sins, none of those evil things that I have done are gonna be held accountable. Only the good is going to be seen. But if I have lived a life of unrepentant sin, Jesus doesn't forget it is written down in the book of your life. And what we will do is we will stand in front of the great throne, right? And he'll say, give, give me a defense of your life. Well, I had sex with a lot of good looking girls, partied a lot. Everyone knew me on social media. And Jesus is gonna say, but I don't know you. Depart from me. Listen, I drove up and saw my mother. She lives, uh, she used to live in downtown St. Louis. That's where I was born. And she moved out to uh, an area called Bourbon, Missouri, about an hour outside of, of St. Louis. You can thank Bourbon if you're a bourbon drinker because that's where it came from. That's where they got the name Bourbon, Bourbon, Missouri. That's where they made the barrels for it anyways. She lives in this little small, cute town, Bourbon, Missouri. I drove up, um, went through St. Louis and, and uh, went and saw my mom and stayed a couple of days just to hang out because I haven't seen her in a while. And we were sitting in a restaurant and uh, my aunt, uh, her older sister and, and her husband came over from St. Louis and we, we sat and had dinner. And we're just sitting there talking and in the middle of dinner, my mom says, hey, look, look around the room, look around the room. Place is pretty full, this little, this little restaurant. Look around the room and I kid you not, she said, my mom goes, find one person that's not on their phone. And now I know you older cats are saying, man, it's all those millennials. Nope, it was a bunch of 40, 50, 60 year olds doing this stuff, right? And what it made me think of, and, and I observe people a lot, but it just made me think, man, how lackadaisically we have approached life. That, that we think, right? Football is life. We wear the shirt. Really? That's your life? And unfortunately, for some people, it is. It is, right? Music is life. Really? Hope you don't break your hands. Can't play it anymore. That's life. That's everything. That's it. That's your purpose, right? Vegging out for 10 hours a day. TikTok, right? It's life. And we laugh at that, but, but on average, people are spending four or five hours a day on social media, right? That's life. That's it. And one day, you, do, do you know that God has given you breath in your lungs? God has given you blood in your veins. God has given you a mind that can think clearly. 
Not so, pardon me, not so we can piss it away on social media. Not so we can squander it away by selfish pursuits. Not, not to, to live so lackadaisically, right? We, we have become a generation that drives to the Grand Canyon not to actually experience it, but so we can get the perfect selfie of it in the background, right? We're the ones so consumed with ourselves that we're not raising our children. We're the ones so consumed with our looks that we cheat on our spouses, right? Do you know the word Facebook is in, is in 33% of all divorce documents? Did you know that? 33%. I bet, I bet everyone in this room knows someone that ended up in a divorce because their spouse talked to someone on social media. I bet you money. And what I have seen is at the end of chapter one of Thessalonians, Paul is saying, take this seriously because one day we're gonna be held accountable. And even so many Christians, right? That live so carelessly with this life you've been given. I think it's Proverbs 16, 20 says, take this seriously, heed these words. This life is not a joke. This life is not just how many notches on the bedpost or how many people think you're pretty or how much money you can get in your bank account or if you can drive a nicer car than the neighbor down the street. You are made in the image of God to have a deeper purpose than these things that just fall apart. That's why Jesus said all these things will pass away, but my word does not pass away. What are we living for? At the end of our life, what account will we be able to give? Does that mean that God doesn't want you to enjoy this life? Absolutely not. One of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. But isn't it ironic in all the pursuits of self, we have the most depressed, anxious, fearful, suicidal, and violent people than we've ever had. You have one life, brothers, sisters. Are we taking it seriously? Would you bow your heads with me? If you are in this room and, and maybe you do not have a relationship with God, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Greg is up here. If you have any questions for him, please come up and talk to Greg. He'd love to talk with you. We have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, anything at all, please, please help yourself and get prayer. The last thing is we have communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, there is bread and wine and that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus loves you, that Jesus died on a cross to forgive you of your sins so you don't have to carry that shame and guilt you don't have to worry about stacking up. You don't have to worry about impressing everyone around you. You can have a relationship with the creator God and be fulfilled and have true joy, true contentment. All we have to do is ask God to forgive us of our sins and walk the, the direction he wants us to go. You can do that this morning, right? And take the elements, spend a little bit of time talking to him. Last thing, and I'm gonna pray for you, and I'm sorry I'm keeping seeing you so long today. In late 2002, of August of 2002, um, I'd just come off a, a, a bender of drinking a bunch of alcohol and trying to kill myself 
first week of August in 2002, I had tried everything to find contentment. Sex, rock and roll, it was popular, the whole nine yards, and all it brought me to was three suicide attempts. If you ask anyone in this room who lived a little bit of life before they came into a relationship with Jesus, they'll tell you the same thing. Tried all these things and all it does is come up short. Because what the world does, is your head's bowed and your eyes are closed, the world sells you this false freedom. It is, it is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the more they try to sell you this false freedom, the more you just end up being enslaved. The more they tell you about sexual freedom, the more addicted we become to it. The more divorce we have, the more issues we have with relationships. The more they tell you about freedom with your body and freedom with intoxication, the more addicted we become, the more we die, the more we hurt other people. Right now, the devil and the world are trying to sell you this wolf in sheep's clothing of this artificial freedom and all it has done is enslaved us. But you don't have to be enslaved. But we have to take this walk seriously. Father, Lord, I love you. I thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for all of us getting to be together today. Lord, I pray that you bless everyone in this room, protect them, keep them safe, God, until we meet again, Lord. We pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.